Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Christian men, let's raise our hands to the Lord and let's go before Him and ask for help. God, we need help and we always need help in every area of our life. And as the men you've called us to be, God, I pray that you would help us to bring your kingdom everywhere we go. I pray that sacrificial love would go every single place that we go. I pray that Christ-like leadership would go every place that we go. Lord Jesus, we want to honor you with the work of our hands, with the words of our mouth. We lift up our families to you. We ask for blessing upon our families. Lord, help us as we're raising children and seeing grandchildren raised and friends and family. Lord, whatever station we find ourselves, help us in that station to bring life to those who are around us. We thank you for this church family. We want to encourage each other. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love each other well, to encourage each other well. I pray if there's anybody here today that we would recognize their need for encouragement and help. So God, I pray that we wouldn't miss anybody. I pray that nobody would feel alone here today. Lord, we thank you for this city and this region, and we ask for revival in this region. Lord Jesus, we pray that years and years from now, there would be more Christians in this area, not less. There would be more people that take your word seriously, not less. And God, I pray that you'd help us to do all we can now to see that happen. God, we expect your work to come and do all the things that we cannot do. Help us to be faithful to, faithful to you and trust you with everything else. Lord, lead us as we go to your word in Hosea today. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for the picture of marriage that's in this book that's going to give us insight to the truth of the gospel. Jesus, thank you for being the faithful bridegroom. For a faithless bride, for a messed up bride, for an unbeautified bride, thank you for coming to fix things, to make things right, to beautify those who cannot get themselves in right order. God, thank you for all you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lead us today, I trust you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hosea chapter 1, we start a new book of the Bible today. I'm excited to preach a new book. We kind of close the previous series off, did a little short series through Titus chapter 2, and now we're in the book of Hosea. I think we'll be here for probably anywhere from 8 to 12 weeks. The chapters sometimes go together, and this book is a tremendous book, and I'm so excited to be here. And, you know, we, we live in a day, by the way, the sermon title this morning is Unholy, Holy Marriage. We're going to be in all of chapter 1, all of Hosea chapter 1, Unholy, Holy Marriage. Ben Shapiro often says, facts don't care about your feelings. Have you heard about that? Facts don't care about your feelings. And we live in a day where you can be the person that's laying out facts, and you can have charts and graphs, and people look at you and say, yeah, but I know my grandma's cousin's uncle who experienced something sad and they try to win the argument like that. It doesn't, facts just don't care. We're inoculated to facts. Okay? It's like we're vaccinated from facts. Um, we don't care. People want stories. They want sob stories. And arguments are won, and popular opinion is won, largely not by data, not by information, not by reality, but it's won by story. We live in a world that prefers stories over facts. Tell me a story, make me cry, win me with the, with the, with the story, not with the argument. And you can show people facts, it's just like they don't care. It doesn't matter, whatever. Just tell me a story. Well, Hosea is interesting because we get facts 
information about the gospel of Jesus, about God's love for sinners, about the nation of Israel, and the difference between the true Israel and just the bloodline of Abraham. We get a bunch of facts, and it's in a story and in a real-life drama, and it's in poetry. So it's, it's an interesting thing here because I think it's fitting for our day that we hear about the, the mighty love of God. We hear about what God has done for us. And it's in a story that really pulls. It, pull, it, it pulls at your heart. It's like your heartstrings are getting tugged, but in a holy manner, not in an unholy manner. It's not just your, your neighbor's cousin that's got the sob story or something like that. It's a story right here in the text that's told to us, and it's intended to get to our hearts. It's not, to, it's not intended to just, just, just leave us the way we are. It's intended to move us and move us in a right and good direction. The story God tells, in the story, God tells a prophet, Hosea, to make a prostitute his wife and to love her even though she's going to cheat on him over and over and over again. Now, because we have little ears in here, I'm going to do everything I can to make a PG and rated R story as light and palpable as possible. I'm not going to take any edges off the words of Scripture, but I want to be careful knowing the, that there are those in the room that may have some questions after some of the sermons through the series. And so the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things at all, and I love that. And if we try to sugarcoat it, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I'm just going to be as wise as I can be as we, as we recognize who's in here with us. Now, marriage is incredible in the Bible because the Bible is bookended by marriage. It's a, there's a marriage in a garden, and there's marriage in the eternal state. We see marriage all throughout the Bible. Marriage is the bookends. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that the gospel of Jesus, um, we, we understand aspects of the gospel of Jesus as we look into marriage. Marriage teaches us about the gospel. It's about Christ and the church. And so this marriage, specifically in Hosea, is going to teach us and it's going to help us understand some aspects of what Christ has done for us. It's going to be, uh, it, be colorful. It's going to be frustrating at times. It's going to feel like a roller coaster at times, but we're going to see a lot of great truth in it. Hosea is going to end up keep, he's going to keep pursuing this woman because God tells him to, and he's going to keep pursue her, pursuing her, and he's going to keep pursuing her, and she's going to continue to cheat on him and continue to cheat on him, and he's going to have to, by the command of the Lord, even though he doesn't feel like it, he's going to have to obey the Lord and love this woman. It, it points us to Jesus. It tells us of God's love for sinners. It tells us the might, the, ma the magnitude of the sinfulness of mankind. Not just the sinfulness of God's chosen people in Israel, but the sinfulness of everyone who's ever lived. It points us to Jesus. It tells us that he came to rescue wicked people, not people who had, who had made themselves lovely and had made themselves marriageable. He came to make sinners his own. He came to betroth a wife, as Ray Ortland said. And I don't quote Ray Ortland much because he's been saying a bunch of crazy things, but Jesus went to the other side of the tracks, and he got a woman from the wrong district, and he called her his own, and he loved her. You're that woman, and so am I. He came to love his own and change his people by the power of his love. The love of God in this book, it's going to tell us the differences, and it's going to point us to the New Testament. We're going to see how Jesus comes not to just make a prostitute bride into a bride that's going to continue to give herself to other lovers, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit into his, his wife. He's going to send the Holy Spirit into actually people, into people, and he's going to change people by the power of his love. We're going to be a changed people. We're going to see how the new covenant is better than the old, and it's an ability to make a group of people a holy people. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And he is at work right now in us, making us holy, Ephesians chapter 5 again says. But let's do some background work. Let's kind of understand a little bit about who Hosea was. Hosea was a prophet. He was a prophet of God in the Old 
uh, in the Old Testament in uh, the 8th century, the 8th century, long time ago. And we can know it's in the 8th century because we can date the book based on the kings that are mentioned right in first, uh, the first uh, verse in chapter 1. We know the kings of Israel that are mentioned in the books. Uh, the Judean kings were mentioned, and they're the, it's Uzziah and Jothan and Ahaz and Hezekiah. That's when he prophesied during the reign of those kings in the south. And in, in the north, the king of Israel in the northern kingdom was Jeroboam. Now, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom in the exact same time um, that Isaiah was. And if you remember, um, Hosea excuse me, was in the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. If you remember about the story of Israel, it is after the kings, okay, so you had King uh, David, after King Saul, and then after David, you had King Solomon, and then after Solomon, you had Rehoboam, and then you had Jeroboam. And what happened after Rehoboam is that the nation of Israel split into two. And so what, what you had was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And what we're dealing with here is the northern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom was made up of Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom had these other ten tribes, and there, were, uh, about, there was about 200 years after the split from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom that happened between that split and now where we find ourselves in the book of Hosea, when Hosea was prophesying. Now, a prophet of God was to speak the words of God, and only the words of God. And a test of a true prophet and a false prophet is that if the false prophet was to say something that did not come to pass and he was proved to be a false prophet, well, then that prophet would be stoned to death. So Hosea was coming to speak the word of the Lord and do the works of the Lord as God would command. So Hosea is in the north. Micah and Isaiah are in the south. I said Isaiah was in the north. I was wrong about that. Micah and Isaiah are in the south prophesying in the south at the same time. Now, the armies that are at bay, that are being kept at bay right now, that are against Israel, are the Assyrians. And what's happened in Israel at this time, and not so much in Judah, although Judah had its times of, of, of worshiping the Canaanite gods as well, what's happening in the northern kingdom right now is, is time and time again, the people of God are abandoning God himself, Yahweh, and they're worshiping Baal, the Canaanite god. They keep worshiping Baal. They keep worshiping, worshiping Baal. Or if you're in academic circles and, and, and you want to say it the right way, it's kind of like, a, you, know, you know, Augustine and Augustine. If you're around, you know, really, really smart people, you're supposed to say Augustine. And with Baal, you're not supposed to say Baal. It's by all, by all. That's how you're supposed to say it. But Baal's a lot easier and a more common word. So I'm going to say it like the average Joe Schmo says it and say Baal. But if you're around somebody that's like, you know, uh, wearing a, a bow tie, say Baal. So God continued to love his people, warn his people, rescue his people. He continued to have a remnant of his people who would not bow a knee to Baal. But God kept doing all that he was doing and had done all that he had done. And God's people kept turning away and kept turning away and kept turning away generation after generation. We also find in chapter 14, verse 3 of the book of Hosea, that they regularly were saying that the work of our hands is our God. What we can accomplish, that is our God. We see from gener generation to generation, we have this astounding ability as human beings to not trust God and to trust these. Even though we see what these get us into, we keep trusting in them, what I can do. They said, and we will say no more, our God to the work of our hands. God is going to do something with his people, and his people will no longer say, this is the work of our hands, it's our might, it's our strength, it's our ability. God is going to do something to change all of that. God is going to demonstrate what his people are like and what he is like and so much more. And it's going to pull at our hearts if we understand it appropriately. Look at verse 1. 
Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. The prophet was to speak the words of God. As I said, it's serious business to speak the words of God. You know, we are privileged to have the Scriptures before us, and the Scriptures tell us in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 1 and 2, that that false prophet was not to be tolerated. A false prophet was to be put to death because the words of God are that serious. And if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, and you're going to say something contrary to God's Word, then you don't deserve to live. And the consequences of being a false prophet is death. Today, we need to be careful for those who would run around saying, thus saith the Lord. They need to recognize that there are consequences to saying, thus saith the Lord, and not speaking the actual words of God. The words of God are the words of God, to make something obvious that didn't make sense to me for many years. The words of God are the actual words of God. The word of God is the words of God. That's important to note. It was a privilege to hear the words of God, and the people of God needed to hear the words of God. And what is the privilege of our day today? The privilege of our day today is that we have the words of God in our hands. We're not dependent upon one prophet or two prophets. We're not dependent upon any prophets except what we have in the prophetic word and the apostolic word. What we have here is the very words of God. We never have to wonder if God is speaking. God is always speaking. You might be in a season in your life and think, man, I feel like my, my, my words are hitting the ceiling and, and God's just not hearing me. And, and experientially, that can be the case where it feels like in seasons that you're just walking through a valley and, and you feel like, man, God's just not hearing me and God's not speaking to me. And then we need the Holy Spirit to remind us, hey, listen, go dust that Bible off and open up God's word because God's word is God's words. God's word is God's words. God is speaking. He's never silent to us, and we are never left without a word no matter what season of life we're in. And Hosea was tasked, speak the words of God and do the works of God as he would be commanded by God. Nothing more, nothing less. He's to do what God had commanded him to do. In fact, this is how we got the words of the Bible. Prophets would speak, thus saith the Lord, and scribes would write it down, and here we have the words of God. God spoke through those prophets, spoke through those apostles, and we get to have these words. It is a tremendous privilege to live in the day that we live. We don't live pre-Gutenberg Press, which is a tremendous blessing to us. We don't, we don't live pre-Reformation era. We don't live in an era where we're hearing preaching in a language that's not our own. We get to hear and see and read the words of God, and it's a tremendous blessing that we live in this day. Now, there's so many people that that talk about and lament the day that we live in. There's a lot of things to lament, isn't there? There's a lot of things to lament about our day that we live in, but it's tremendous. This is the time that God has determined for us to live, and let's not whine and cry about it. Praise God that we get to live in this time, because God has determined the boundary places, of not just our lives, of our life and death, but also in the places that we live. Praise God that we get to live here in this moment because this is what God has for us. And there are blessings if we open our eyes to see it. And one of those amazing blessings that we never need to get over, that we never need to be, you know, stop being shocked by, is that we get to hear from God anytime we want to. We get to open His words and we get to read what He has to say to us. That's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. So highest, Hosea's task Speak God's words and do God's work. Look at verse 2. This is the tremendous task that was given to him 
by God. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. All right. We're going to say whore a few times, so let's just get used to it. Um, never had there been as difficult of a task for a prophet as this, one that's so personal. It is easier for the prophet Jeremiah to be in a cistern in the mud awaiting his death than it is to take a wife of whoredom and to have children with her. Knowing that your task is going to have to be loving this woman as God had loved Israel. Deeply personal. It's, a, it's like the prophet, I think, would have been cleaning out his ears just like the prophet Ezekiel when he was given his task and his mission, lay on your side. And Ezekiel's like, what? Why? That seems so arbitrary. Because I asked you to. And here is Hosea being commissioned to go take a woman like this, marry her, and love her, have children with her. This is going to be a difficult life that Hosea was... Every, every life of a prophet was difficult, but this was deeply, deeply personal. To be God's man is to be willing to obey the Lord no matter what the cost to yourself. And if he's going to be the prophet of God, so many people want to do mighty things for God, but they don't want to do what God calls them to do. Don't want to do what God requires them to do in the simplest manner. Here is Hosea who's willing to obey the Lord no matter what the cost to yourself. And we get this picture of marriage, and we think about marriage. Remember, the Bible is bookended about marriage, and here we're going to get a story about a marriage. A marriage between... Between a woman, here in a second we're going to get introduced to, a woman named Gomer, and this man, this prophet named Hosea. And he's going to have to have children with her. And we're told why God is asking him to do this. Because it's a picture, it's going to be this metaphor, it's going to be something that tells us what the people of Israel are like to God. It's going to give us a kind of behind the scenes look at what Israel has been doing. Why is Hosea to do this? Because the land has been committing Whoredom by forsaking God. And so God's going to give us this real life example, real life demonstration of, of what his people are like. Not just the Canaanites. They're, they're not just the, the, the wicked ones. Not just all the Gentiles. They're not just the wicked ones. Now those who have the title above them, chosen by God. Those who have the title above them, the people of God. Those who have above them the promises and the covenants. Israel, who traces their lineage back to Abraham. Even they are sinners. And their sin is outrageous. It's egregious. It's not as if Israel is this kind of a woman, but the pagans and the Gentiles were all pure and beautiful and marriageable. And they were the ones that had a whole lot going for them. Everybody was messed up. Everybody was walking in the depth of human pride, sin, and rebellion. But because we see this even in Israel, God's people... Because we see this, we're going to see the depth and the power of God's judgment, His love and mercy. And after chapter 3, we get the story really in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We've got to keep in mind what happens here in chapter 1 and even in verse 2. In a lot of ways, verse 2 is just the summary of what the whole book is about. And then we get through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we've got to keep, keep in mind this story and this, this picture with us. And we're going to take that with us all the way through the poetry and the highs and lows of judgment and promise that come in chapters ver Chapters four, verse, chapters 4 through 14. And so we have to keep in mind what we're hearing today for the rest of the book. Now, Hosea responds, and Hosea doesn't respond, and I love this, he doesn't respond with questions, which is, which is I, I think, how I would respond. 
God, did I hear you right? That doesn't sound like something I'm supposed to do. Um, that doesn't sound too pleasant to me. Can you give me a better task? I mean, I'll do what you've called Jonah to do. I mean, I'll go to the, the you know, I'll, I'll go to the Ninevites. I'll, I'll go there. Give me something else to do. But Hosea doesn't talk back. He simply obeys. So what does he do in verse 3? Look, so he went and took Gomer. Immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea quickly obeyed. And they have a son. Now notice the point is made that Hosea is the father of this first son. It's a point that will not be made with the other two children. It's a point that's only made with this first child. Now here's how the rest of the chapter breaks down. There's going to be three children. And the names of the children are going to give us insight to what God is doing and to the nature of Israel. Okay, Remember the northern kingdom is what we're dealing with here. The ten tribes of Israel. Three children, three names. The first name is Jezreel. Look at verse 4 and 5. The Lord said to him, call his name, this is their firstborn son, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, this, tell you what, preaching Hosea and preparing to preach Hosea has been more challenging than Titus 2. Now, it's not that other passages or any of God's Word is, uh, is, is not challenging. Every single time you preach and you prepare, there's challenges to it. But when you're talking about story and metaphor in the Old Testament, when you're talking about the covenants and the Israel within Israel that we'll look at here in a little bit, you have a lot that you have to weed through and dig through. You're talking about the history of Israel, and you're talking about things that point us back. Things if we're not familiar with, things like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we'll miss so thankful for the tools that we have today. And as we're reading through our Bible reading challenge, what you'll see is as you're reading through the Old Testament, the themes that you read in the history of the kings, you go and you'll, you'll catch these when you hear the prophets to those kingdoms. You hear these stories and you can begin to connect the dots over the years. It's so good to read the Bible and keep reading the Bible and keep reading the Bible. And then you're able to see more of what you didn't see before. So what we have to keep in mind is Jehu was a king in Israel and he was mostly an evil king. Mostly. He did some things the way the Lord would have him do. Jehu received uh, the throne, stepped into the throne by assassinating King Joram, who was his predecessor in Israel. Now, these kings were kind of in the midway point of the northern kingdom when the northern kingdom started and before the fall of the northern kingdom and before their exile. And so right in the middle or, or so, we have Joram. Now, the prophet, or the problem with the northern kingdom, and this we see over and over again, king after king, was this, this guy named, this, this false god named Baal, or Baal. Baal. They kept worshiping Baal. For some reason, there was something seductive about Baal, even though the worship of Baal would require things like child sacrifice. It would require them to do things that would so clearly violate God's law. And yet they continued to come to Baal. They continued to make sacrifices to Baal over and over and over again. Sexual sins of all sorts, murder, and other violations that were permissible through the worship of Baal. There were violations of everything that God had called them to do. And instead of remembering the God that had brought them out of Israel, brought them into the, excuse me, Egypt, and brought them into the promised land, they kept rebelling and taking on the gods of the Canaanites. Now, this first name, Jezreel, 
is a name that's going to symbolize something for us. Even though they've been given God's gracious law, they had come to a moment, wave after wave of lawlessness and walking in the ways of those Canaanites. And so they get this name, Jezreel, that comes from the valley of Jezreel. And you can look at this valley up still. Uh, and you can look at the valley of Jezreel and see this. You can go visit the valley of Jezreel still today. But the first name symbolizes a time of future judgment that God would lay upon the northern kingdom of Israel and that judgment would happen in this valley. And this name is symbolizing then that they're going to be judged for the sins of the past, the Baal worship, and one day in the future there was going to be a judgment that, come, that would come in this valley and it would happen years later. God would not tolerate His people worshiping Baal. He wouldn't tolerate it. He's a jealous God. In the same way husbands should be jealous of the love of their wives. Not just a, an eye looking at your wife. You know, you, you want your wife to be pretty. You, you don't want everybody to think, well, she's really ugly. You don't want that. But you are jealous for her. If she was seduced, there should be something that rises up inside of you. Not on my watch. You should protect your wife. You love your wife. Well, God would not tolerate those who bear His name worshiping a false god. There's a dire warning to all who bear the name of Christ. You see, here's how this worked in the Old Testament. You could walk in the ways of Abraham, your father, like the Pharisees did. You could, you could call yourself a child of God. You could say, We're not, we've never been enslaved to anyone. We have the covenants of promise. We belong. We, we're circumcised. We're the people of God. You can say that all you want. If you're worshiping false gods, God will not tolerate it. If you're God's people in name only, you have got judgment coming your way. And He will not tolerate it. Those who bear the name of Christ but do not follow Him and worship other gods ought to be aware. God will not, in the northern kingdom, tolerate. He's going to put an end to this false god worship. And he's storing up his wrath for a day of judgment. Just because you have the title child of God above you doesn't mean you're actually born again. You can bear the name of Christ even to this day. You can worship. So-called worship him. And go to church. And how many people we know go to church for years and then all of a sudden they disappear? Or how many people you know go to church just for a social gathering just because that's what you do and that's becoming less and less popular in our day. But there are so many people today that bear the name of Christ and they're... In some ways, I, I want to I beat the drum here. And I, I want to do what I, I said last week where you don't let anyone disregard you here. The idol worship of our day is not Baal. The primary idol worship that we're dealing with today is the worship of the state. Primary. It's not consumerism. It's not um, chasing after trinkets or money or wealth, power. Certainly those are all idols that we've got to deal with. We've got to run. But it's the worship of the state. It's the worship of experts. It's the worship of anyone who would tell me what I'm supposed to do. We're beholden by people other than God. And we've got to beware of that. And there are Christians all throughout this land. I belong to, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do this or that. 
And as soon as the government says to do something God has told them not to do, they do it. Or as soon as the government says you can't do that, prohibitions and commissions from the government, people bow down. Okay, bail. It's bail worship. And we, not, we cannot presume, cannot presume, because we are called the people of God, the church in America or around the world cannot presume that God will not deal with that kind of rebellion. Beware of those who say they belong to God, but do not obey His voice and follow His commandments. Baal worship abounds. It's everywhere still to this day. So this first name, Jezreel, of their first child, of Hosea's first child, in this whole story, this whole narrative that's given us insight and wisdom into what's going on in the cosmos and how God saves people, the first name is Jezreel. He will not tolerate the worship of Baal. And so they will be judged in the future. The next verse, verse 6, the next child tells us about a little girl's name, No Mercy. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Now the point needs to be made that she conceived again. And most scholars think that that's because she was the type of woman that she was. Most likely this was not Hosea's daughter. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will, no have, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. What a warning. Gomer conceived. Most likely Hosea is not the daddy. Uh, based, based on what we know of her, her infidelity and looseness most likely started... I mean, very early on. There's debate about whether or not her looseness was there before they got married or started after they got married. I think what, we're, what we see is that if, she is, if, if, if Hosea was to marry a woman that was this kind of a woman, that this is something that's been there in her life for a very long time, he knew what he was getting into. And just their marriage didn't stop her previous behavior. It just continued on. Past behavior, by the way, this is a side note, is a pretty good indication of future behavior. And if you're looking for a spouse and they're doing things right now before you're married that you don't like, that are not good, that are not godly, those patterns of behavior most likely are going to continue unless there's, there's repentance. Past behavior typically determines like that, direct, that trajectory is going to, going to keep going unless there is a pattern of repentance. What you want to look for is a repentant man or a woman. Because marriage problems, after all, are... Sin problems, and the answer to marriage problems is repentance. That's the answer. It's not just trying to understand each other more, and that's important. You do need to do that. Communication, my goodness. I communicate very well, but Jordan, I, she just struggles to communicate. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. That's, sometimes I'll say something, and then she's like, no, what? What did you mean? And then I'll repeat it back, and I'll be like, that makes no, that's complete gibberish. I'm, I'm so sorry. Back to Hosea and Gomer. Uh, most likely it was not his daughter. He's so, uh... now remember in this time, because we're told that there's no mercy and that God is saying about Israel that he's not going to forgive them at all and he's going to have no mercy upon them. We have to keep in mind that there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant in the rebellious house of Israel. There was a greater remnant in Judah, but there's always a remnant in Israel. And what God is telling them is that just because you are the children of Abraham, you cannot presume that all of your sins will be forgiven. 
There's going to be a day. I'm, I'm not going to have mercy on you anymore. It's going to be judgment. And judgment's coming to this house. And God is saying that He's not the Father of the house of Israel. I am not the Father. The way Hosea is not the Father of no mercy, I am not your Father anymore. This is why the, the Israelites coming to Jesus and coming to John the Baptist saying, we have God as Father. And they're like, no, you don't. You do not have Him as your Father. God's able to raise up children for the Lord from these rocks right here. And they'll cry out to the God who sits on the throne, but you are not the children of God. And God is not the father of the house of Israel. Now, we need to keep in mind in Romans chapter 9, we're going to turn there in just a little bit, 6 through 9, we find out that God is not the father of those that simply have the name or have the, mar have the mark of circumcision of the physical bloodline of the Jews. God is the father of those who have faith. Those who are born from Isaac. Those who are children of the promise. Not just those who are born in the bloodline of Abraham. We always have to keep that in mind throughout the book of Hosea. We'll get to that in greater detail here in just a little bit. So he's not the father of Israel. This is a dire warning again that judgment is coming. Those who are Israel in name only, can only cannot presume to be counted amongst those who will have their sins forgiven. Look at verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war horses, or by horsemen. He's going to have mercy on Judah. Now he starts saying words to Israel, the northern kingdom, about the southern kingdom, and saying that they have his mercy. And it's not that Judah did not bow the knee to Baal, because they did at times. But this is a passage that indicates that Judah is identified with the Israel within Israel. There's a story here that's unfolding. It's a story that brings confusion to this day, up until this day. Um, the people of God have always been one people of God. It's, it's not as if there's been, well, there's Israel and now there's the church. There's always been one people of God. And there's only been one way to have access to the God of the universe. And it's through being saved by God through His grace and mercy. And it's through faith in those who are being saved. It's not through birthright from the Old Testament to New. This is where some of the confusion gets. And you start talking about eschatology and you start talking to people and they talk about replacement theology. And well, has the church replaced Israel and all that kind of stuff? And you get down into the weeds and you get so confused. What we have to know is that there's always been one people of God. Just one. From the Old Testament to New, and that one people of God have been saved the exact same way by the hand of God. Not by the strength of horses, not through the strength or the power of, of their might, but they've been saved by the grace and the mercy of God. And they've had to be the children of the promise, those who have expressed faith in the promises of God. There's been one people of God, and God is going to have mercy on this people, Judah. Judah is representative of all those who are saved by grace. He is their Savior. They're the true people of God. And this salvation that God is talking about is something more that can be attained by the strength of any nation. There's something that can't be attained by our power, even if we line up side by side by the greatest warriors in the world. Something that can't be apprehended, something that can't be dragged down from heaven by the strength of our hands. God is giving us a sign about the nature of His saving work. It has to come from Him. It cannot come from us. It has to come from Him. He says it again. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
You can't get that kind of salvation that way. It has to come from God. This is a pointer to what Jesus will do. It's a pointer to the cross about salvation that can't come through the power of any army, any earthly army. We get to the third child in verse 8 to 9. Look at verse 8. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, most of your Bibles have lo ruhamah as the name. And then down at the bottom of your Bible, you have not my people. The ESV just goes ahead and puts not my people for the name. Now, these are interesting names, right? Like, hi, not my people. How are you doing this morning? <laughs> hi, no mercy. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Jezreel. Jezreel's like the only one that's kind of like a normal name. I'm normal, but a name. Hi, not my people. Good morning. But what does it mean? And how do we understand the meaning of all of this? Because you, you get into this, and it, sometimes it feels like, okay, how, how can I understand this? You know, I'm not... I'm not a Jew, I didn't, I didn't come, you know, from this background, and there's so much about the history of Israel, and I'm not, I don't know the Old Testament as much as I know the New Testament, and so the, the great thing about the Bible is that understanding, and I said this a couple weeks ago, but understanding the Bible works backwards. If you don't understand the epistles, it's very hard to understand the Gospels correctly. If you don't understand the Gospels, it's very hard to understand the Old Testament correctly. And so what we need is all of the revelation of God's Word, and we get some insight from the New Testament about the nature of these passages. But look at verse 10 first, and then we'll jump to Romans, and we'll jump to 1 Peter. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of Israel, of the children of Israel, shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, this is, uh, seems to be contradictory verses right back to back. What's happening here? Either we have a contradictory passage from verse 10 to verse 11, or excuse me, verse 9 to verse 10, or we got to lean in a little bit, we got to study a little bit, we got to pray and understand theologically what's happening here. Because he says in verse 9, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And he says in verse 7, I will not save them, or excuse me, in verse, uh, uh, verse 7, but I will have, or verse 6, Call her name no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So he's not going to have mercy, he's not going to forgive them, and they are not his people. And then verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. How do these things go together? How can God not be their God, and not give them mercy, and not give them forgiveness, and yet the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the sea? You go to the sand, you know, you go to go like any beach, of just like a small, tiny little beach. You know, you go to that Crab Orchard Beach, the public beach that's really just a public place for goose to, geese to poop. It's like geese poop with a little bit of sand. But it's fun, you know, you go there. And you just go anyways, you just kind of kick the geese poop out. Anybody know what I'm talking about at the Carterville Beach? Okay, nobody does. That's, that happens. You go to that beach, it's just geese feces everywhere. But the granules of sand at that tiny little beach... Anybody want to sign up for uh, numbering the grains of sand on that tiny little beach? There's billions of them. Trillions of them. Trillions of these little pieces of sand. What's the word that comes after trillions? What's the numerical number that comes after trillions? We were asking that the other day. Anybody know? Quadrillion. There's quadrillions of pieces of sand out there, probably. I don't, that's my estimate. There's probably that many. Or trillions. It's just it's an amazing number. Now imagine you go, you go to Florida, you go to the beach somewhere, and you see it in the sand. Uh, guys, the, the, the number of people that are going to be labeled the children of God is huge. 
And the Bible paints this picture, certainly broad is the path and narrow is the way, but sometimes we can get pigeonholed into this thing to think that, oh man, there's not going to be that many people in the eternal state. There's not going to be that many people in heaven. But what we get in the Bible is that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. What we get in the Bible is that, hey, listen, there's going to be so many people that belong to God that it's going to be numbered like the number of the sand in the sea. You can't number how many granules of sand there are out there. You won't be able to number how many people I'm going to save. The number is going to be massive. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or numbered. It's like the the task is overwhelming. I can't count the sand. I can't count how many people are, are numbered in the children of Israel. So how do these things go together? How could it be that Israel's not my people, and yet the number of the children of Israel shall be able to... It's just like the sand of the sea. How's it possible? So the New Testament is going to help us out with this. Because even those in the Old Testament, if you don't have the New Testament, if you don't believe in the inspired word, there's still people to this day that have no idea what the Old Testament is about. They're still walking around in the dark because they don't have what we have today. The New Testament references these passages and it's going to help us understand. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 21 through 26. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to turn to 1 Peter here in a minute as well. We're going to be in Romans chapter 9. Starting in verse 21, Romans chapter 9 is a wildly popular chapter to people throughout the world. (laughs) In verse 21, it gives us some insight. It helps us tremendously. All of chapter 9 does, specifically the front, front part talking about true Israel and false Israel and who's the real Israel. And then in verse 21, it says this, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? By the way, side note, if your answer is no, that's the wrong answer. God does have that right. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known, the, known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Ooh, that's pretty cool. And then he quotes where we're at today. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place that it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. We get these connections. The Holy Spirit brings some clarity. There is a true Israel that was unknown at the time. When when we hear this in Hosea, we don't exactly know what's being talked about, but from this side, from the angle we're sitting, from the seats that we're sitting, we're able to look back and recognize, here's what he was talking about. Us in this room, mostly Gentiles sitting in this room, were amongst the number he was talking about. He was looking ahead. We look behind. God's mercy was to extend and expand the true Israel into the whole world. And in the places, every, all throughout this earth, that it was called not my people. This is a metaphor of people going to be called my people. I'm going to call them my people now. And they're going to number the true Israel. It's going to be numbered and you won't be able to count the sand on that beach, and you're not going to be able, be able to count the number of those who are called the true Israel. The rebellion of Israel had its place in salvation 
history. The nation of Israel. And its place is to bring about the salvation and and bring God's grace that would extend beyond them and into the whole entire world. The true Israel is not simply born a Jew. The true Jew, the real child of God, those who are labeled God's people are those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, all throughout this globe, we have little sand granules. You and I, sand granules. And all throughout this city, it'd be hard if you had a room full of every Christian that's in this city and region, it would be hard just in this little region, little tiny dot on the map, to be able to count how many are there, to number how many are there. You know, when you used to go to youth group, you'd get like the cheese ball thing, and you'd guess how many are a gumball thing, and you'd guess how many gumballs or cheese balls are in it, and you'd be the winner at the end. So, you know, you, you count the horizontal and count the vertical and times it out and see, you know, kind of get a you know, systematize how you're going to do this. And if you just piled all the Christians just throughout this region, it's like little sand granules. Sand granules. You, you can't count them. God's mercy has extended beyond Israel. And the number of God's people is going to go out throughout this whole earth. It's an amazing thing. The number of those who will be saved shall be like the sand of the sea. And I am tremendously hopeful about this. That's why I think the kingdom of God is continuing to spread right now. Abortion is always murder. Always. It's never not murder. It's always murder. Um, It's my firm conviction that age of accountability is a biblical thing, and those children belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. And we're going to get to meet them. They are sand granules. They're Israel. The people of God. Saved by His grace. Think about the numbers. Millions of people that have been slaughtered. And Think about heaven continuing to be filled up and populated. All throughout this globe. All around this globe. Of people who are born and converted. And families that are raised. Raising their kids. And, and seeing generations walk with the Lord. Thinking about all these babies that have been murdered, being with the Lord. And you think about the numbers, and you just start adding the numbers of how many billions of people are on this earth, and 33% of people in this world claim to be Christians right now. And we think about how that is continuing to expand, and the trajectory is actually going. In the future, I was looking at these numbers based on conversion rates. Here in just a few decades, we're going to own more of the global population of Christianity than we do now. Like, the trajectory is going up. Not just 33%, but it's actually going up. There are a lot of people that are being redeemed and saved by God's grace. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at a macro and a micro view, and we're going to finish up here in just a second in Hosea. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the first sermon I preached in the previous church I was at. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. We're going to first look at this big view, and then we're going to zero down into an individual view. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. So we, see, we, we saw in Romans that the Gentiles are, clu- are included in. That it's not, just, uh, it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles are included in as the people of God. Now look at verse, uh, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's think about the macro view. So macro, micro. Macro's big. Micro's small. I used to remember that by thinking about micro machines. Remember the fast-talking micro machine guy? 
macro, micro, macro view. There was a time when the Gentile nations had no identity. They worshipped false gods. Once Gentiles were not in the possession of God the way Israel was. Now they have been saved by God. There's implications for every single Christian. Bring it down to the micro version. The story of Hosea is the story of every single Christian that's ever been saved by God. We do have the story of Israel and what God is doing with Israel, but it's your story and it's my story as well. You see, we're told that Hosea has implications for all Gentiles and for people throughout this whole world that will be redeemed by God. So the story in Hosea, the marriage in Hosea, this is about us as well. Because we once walked in darkness. You just start thinking this and rolling through your head and praying through this and working through this. This was the story of every one of us. We were Gomer. You were Gomer. You think, well, I'm a man. You were Gomer too. Every single one of us suppressed the truth. Every one of us walked in wickedness and deserved judgment and only judgment. Every one of us played the loose woman. But God did something. What did God do for a room full of hustlers, a room full of pimps, and a room full of streetwalkers? What did He do? He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we were born. He saved us. He made us into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. The bridegroom came to save us and to clean us up and to make us His bride. We were Gomer. He came to clean us up, to save us, and not just leave us in that desperate state, but to purify His people and make us pure and holy. As we stated at the beginning, we should be holy for He is holy. Jesus is so much better of a Savior than Hosea because Hosea couldn't actually transform his wife. Jesus comes and forgives us, saves us, betrothes us, brings us in, and then changes us from the inside out. He did this that we can proclaim Him. Not to proclaim our goodness or mercy. We were the ones walking on the other side of the tracks. We were the gomer. The message of the story isn't He was drawn to us because of our beauty. We were the ones that had earned judgment in the valley of Jezreel. We were the ones with the name No Mercy. We were the ones, personally, we were the ones that didn't deserve anything from God but judgment. And the story of this marriage is pointing us to the great marriage where Jesus would come and redeem women and men just like that. This story demonstrates our formal sinfulness, former sinfulness. It was God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He called us to proclaim not the excellencies of us, but the one who called us out of that lifestyle. Jesus is the one. Hosea is the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the one that came We see this gut-wrenching story over and over again of this woman who will not be faithful to him. Hello? And yet God is still faithful. We once had judgment coming our way. Every one of us. Now we have mercy that's ours. We once were not a people with no identity. Now we're God's people. We have an identity. We belong to the God of the universe. Who are you? You're God's child. Who do you belong to? God. 
That's where we find our unity. I want you to turn back to Hosea. Because it's not just for us personally. There's going to be something that God would do for that remnant, that God would do for Judah as well. Look at verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. This is messianic. It's hopeful. Even though judgment's coming, judgment came upon Judah as well, by the way. Exile would be all of God's people in the Old Testament. They would go into exile. There would be victory and defeat. There would be subjection to slavery, and then one day they would be pulled out again. But all of these are metaphors. They're all pointing us to something that's in the future. It's all written down for our instruction. They're going to be united by one hope. There's a promise here for God's people in the Old Testament. It's a promise that we can lay hold of today, right now, as God's people. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And instead of infighting, instead of this fighting back and forth with a sibling rivalry, they shall appoint for themselves one head. They'll be united, united, not united, united, appointing for themselves one head. And who is that one head? That one head is Jesus Christ. This is the pattern of the book. Judgment and promise. Poetry of hope and then of judgment and despair. And then right when we think there's only bad news, we get a verse like this. But one day, something's going to change. One day, somebody's going to come. One day where there's disunity, there will be unity. One day when there's no restoration, there will be restoration. One day when there's sibling rivalry, there'll be a day when there won't be sibling rival rivalry anymore. Judah and Israel gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. God will restore this divided kingdom and they will appoint this one head, Jesus Christ. And the only way any Jewish person can ever be saved is by that one man, Jesus Christ. The only way any Gentile or any person in this entire world can be saved is through that one man, that one head of the church, Jesus Christ. Those who have trusted in Christ from whatever tribe they come from throughout this world have unity in Christ and so does the global Gentile church. Then it ends with going up and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And they shall go up from the land. It's interesting. Jerusalem was up. Their captives were down. This is like topography here or whatever the right word is for that. Okay, They were higher up in elevation. Jerusalem was up high. Captives were down. And the promise as we wrap up chapter 1 is that the judgment will not be the end of the story. They will be back. Redemption is always like this. We see this throughout the whole Old Testament. We see fall and getting back up. We see judgment, God's wrath, and God's salvation by His hand. It plays a part in the story. And in that day, Jezreel will be great and not awful. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wait a minute. I thought the day of Jezreel was one of judgment. The valley of Jezreel is where judgment's going to come. We read about that in 1 Kings. But now it's said that the day of Jezreel will be great. See, God is always doing something. And judgment is never the end of the story. As long as rejection of the one head isn't there. So there's strong language in the story. Um, I hope I did an okay job today with this, but there's strong language, and there's strong language with a theme. I love this. God says these words. God says these words. 
And he uses these words and applies them, not just to Israel, but they're applied to everyone. These are metaphors of us. That's what we see in Romans 9. That's what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is what he said about every one of you before you became a Christian. The W word. And Jesus came, and he came to you. And you didn't repulse him. He came to you where you shouldn't be, in the midst of your sin, and he betrothed you. He saved you. And he brought, brought you to himself. And it's ludicrous for any believer to say, it was because of me. You are Gomer, and so am I. You need a rescuer. You need Hosea. Men, that might sound weird to you. Think of it in the terms of salvation. You need a warrior king to come and rescue you. The Bible doesn't apologize for calling you the bride of Christ either, men. You need a savior. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the warrior king. He is the true and better prophet. And for every single Christian in this room, he has justified us. He's brought us toward him. He rescued us from the other side of the tracks, brought us to his side. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us so that we don't have to keep going to the other side of the tracks again. So that we, have to, we don't have to return to the vomit that was our former life. That we don't have to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back and keep going back with no trajectory toward holiness because he's actually beautifying his bride. He's coming and he's come to change us. Now the Spirit has come and God will not allow us to play the whore anymore. Derek Webb used to have a song. I used to like it. I don't like it anymore. Um, I used to be that. You know, wedding dress song? There's parts of it that's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But we see where the implications of that song have gotten him. Full apostasy. You're not that woman anymore. You're not Gomer anymore. You belong to Jesus. And he's made you a new person. We're called to be holy and God will make it happen. If you don't know Jesus today, repent and be forgiven. Your Hosea is here today. Let's pray.